Section 11 of the Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rowe-Wheeler. Zoology, the Vertebrates, Reptiles, Part 2. The keynote of the age of reptiles, as compared with the world of today, was the dominance of brute force. The varied types of reptilia which ruled land and swamp, sea and air, were but little inferior in size and not greatly inferior in mechanical organization, in strength and speed, to the higher animals which have taken their place. But they were notably inferior in type of brain, with the intelligence, adaptability, and agility which it entails. Their disappearance at the end of the Cretaceous period is to be ascribed partly to their being unable to adapt themselves to changed conditions of life brought about by changes in climate and geography of the world which they inhabited partly to the competition of the more intelligent and adaptable mammals and birds that were being evolved to compete with them. There may have been other important factors in causing their extinction. Several have been suggested, many more might be suggested. But these are known causes and must have played an important part in the process. The others are mostly guesswork. At the end of the Age of Reptiles, there were a few surviving groups which have persisted to the present day with but little change. They were the turtles, crocodiles, lizards, and snakes, which on account of their habits and environment came less directly into competition with the higher quadrupeds and birds or whose surroundings were not altered by changes in geography and climate. These are the reptiles of today, a small and despised remnant of a class which ruled the world for millions of years. And for a gigantic and formidable beast has hardly since been equaled. The turtles and tortoises, Chelonia, form a well-armored group. The slow-moving tortoise is one of the most thoroughly protected of four-footed animals. Give him a chance to withdraw his head, legs, and tail within his shell and close the lids, and no enemy can molest him unless it be large and powerful enough to crush his whole shell between its jaws. He lives upon snails, slugs, caterpillars, earthworms, etc., with a considerable addition of vegetable food, usually hibernates in winter, and continues his leisurely, untroubled existence for a long period of years, perhaps even for centuries. It is only in his younger days that he has much to fear from enemies. But the eggs and young are toothsome morsels for carnivorous animals, and in spite of the care with which the mother conceals her eggs in the sand, burying them and effacing all marks which might serve as guide to their location, probably very few survive to be adult. Land tortoises are found everywhere, except in the Australian region, and are found on several isolated oceanic islands, where, unmolested by higher quadrupeds, 
they are very abundant and reach large size. Their aquatic relatives, to which the name turtle is usually restricted, are of several different groups similar in general appearance but not very closely related. They are generally more active, less completely protected by shell, and with the feet more or less completely converted into flippers for swimming. The pond tortoises, or marsh turtles, terrapins, are nearest to the true land tortoises, but have a flatter shell. One of the prettiest among them is the painted terrapin, Chrysimus, with its handsome pattern of red and yellow on a background of dull greenish-black, but most of them are dull-colored. The diamondback terrapin, noted as the finest of all edible turtles, frequents the salt marshes of the Atlantic coast, especially in the southern states, but is rapidly becoming scarce except where artificially protected. The snapping turtles and mud turtles are more aquatic and less completely protected by bony shell. The sea turtles are wholly marine, mostly confined to tropical seas and valued not only as food but for the tortoise shell manufactured from the outer layer of the carapace. The largest of these marine turtles is the green turtle, Chelone, inevitably connected in song and story with aldermanic banquets and other such civic functions. A near relative is the hawksbill turtle, the chief source of the tortoise shell of commerce. The side-necked turtles, abundant in the rivers of all the southern continents, are rather distantly related to those we have mentioned. Although much alike superficially, the construction of the carapace is different, and in withdrawing the head into the shell, they bend the neck sideways, while the others bend it vertically in an S-shaped curve. Vast numbers of these turtles live in the South American rivers. The soft-shelled river turtles, Trionyx, of the northern continents on the one hand and the marine leathery turtles on the other, are ancient offshoots of the main Chelonian stock, which have endured with little change since a reptilian age. Like the turtles, the crocodiles are a race of ancient lineage. During the age of reptiles, they infested both seas and rivers in all parts of the world. Since then, their range has been gradually restricted. The marine forms long ago became extinct. The river crocodiles have disappeared from most temperate regions and are common only in tropical or subtropical rivers. The living species are grouped as alligators, crocodiles, and gavials, differing in the width of the skull and to some extent in their food habits. The narrow-snouted gavials of the East Indies feed chiefly upon fish. The broad-headed alligators, chiefly New World, and the crocodiles, chiefly Old World, with heads of medium width and muzzles notched at the sides near the front to receive a large tooth in the lower jaw, lie in wait for land animals which come down to the rivers to drink or attempt to cross. These also live partly on fish. They are said to dig burrows in the banks of the rivers where they dwell, and like turtles, they lay their eggs in a nest in the dry sand or earth of the riverbank, usually covering them up and leaving them to hatch by the heat of the sun. The crocodile, with its covering of armor scales, its powerful jaws and tail, 
is still formidable in modern tropical rivers. And to primitive man, armed only with spears and arrows, it must have been almost unassailable. One cannot wonder at the superstitious respect in which it was held in ancient Egypt. The Caymans of South America are closely related to the alligators. In contrast with the slow-moving armored turtles and crocodiles, the lizards are mostly quick, active, small in size, and unprotected by armor, the skin covered with small, horny scales. They are wholly terrestrial, most abundant in arid or desert regions, but they live almost everywhere, except in the cold, temperate, and arctic zones. Their small size, quick movements, dexterity in hiding, and ability to live in rocky and desert places enable them to compete very well with small mammals, and they are a numerous and varied race. For the most part, they live upon insects and are very adept in catching them. A few lizards attain a considerable size. The monitors of Africa, the East Indies, and Australia reach a length of six or seven feet. In the tropical parts of the New World, the iguanas attain an equal size. Among the smaller kinds, the geckos, skinks, and true lizards are most familiar. Professor Gatto describes the habits of the gecko as follows. In their native haunts, they are very regular in their habits. Favorite resorts of theirs are old olive trees or oak trees, in the rough and cracked bark of which affords excellent places for hiding in. Hollow trees are, of course, preferred. Not a single specimen is seen during the early hours of the morning or in the forenoon, but when the sun has become broiling hot and our own shadow passes over the stem of a tree, we become aware of flitting little shadows which jerk over its surface. These are geckos which had been basking, motionless, very dark gray, almost blackish, just like the color of the gray bark upon which the last season's wet moss has been scorched to a black cinder. It is difficult to espy a gecko while it is glued on to such a tree. Only the little bitty eyes betray it, watching you carefully. Nothing appears more easy than to catch that motionless thing. You put out your hand and it is gone. Like a flash, it has moved a foot higher up or down, to the right or to the left, just where you least expected it to go. And there it clings, motionless as before. It does not seem to run, it glides along, dodging over to the other side of the stem and back again. There is system in its motions, since, taking a last leisurely look around, it gently disappears in a rent or hole. Toward the evening, or when these shadows become longer, the geckos become lively. One after another appears on the surface, upon the tree, or at the entrance of the cave, and they all move about in their peculiar rushing jerks. Spiders, flies, mosquitoes, moths form the principal diet, and the hunting goes on well into the night. Where a gecko has been seen once, it is sure to reappear the next day at the same hour. Those which take up their abode inside a house become almost domesticated. They are strange sights when hunting for flies, running up and down the papered walls. But we fairly gasp when they come to the upper corner, calmly bend over, and with the next jerk, slide along the whitewashed ceiling. We are accustomed to flies performing such feats, but at animals five inches long, supple and fat, we are inclined to draw the line.
However, that is the way of geckos, and, be it confessed, the more we ponder over the mechanism of their fingers and toes, the less we comprehend how such little vacua can support or suspend such heavy creatures from a dry and often porous surface. Among the 1,500 species of true lizards, many are of very odd appearance and interesting habits. The flying dragons of the East Indies have wing-like membranes shaped very like the wings of a butterfly when extended, supported by long extensions of the ribs, and used as parachutes in long leaps from tree to tree. They are not much larger than a large butterfly, so that the name dragon is rather a misfit as to size. Another remarkable type is the Plamidosaurus, or frilled lizard, of Australia, with very long, slender legs and tail and a large frill around the neck, which it erects when brought to bay. It runs ordinarily on its hind legs, the forelegs hanging down, the long tail balancing the body. In shape, the frill has an absurd resemblance to the great bony neck frills of the horned dinosaurs and the long legs and biped gait are also singularly like certain dinosaurs. It is said to reach a length of two or three feet. The quaint little horned toads, Phrynosoma, of the western United States, too, suggest some of the extinct armored dinosaurs. The ugly, poisonous Gila monsters of the same region, brightly colored in orange and black, are a well-known example of warning coloration, the colors enabling the hungry bird or coyote to recognize and avoid them. The chameleons are found chiefly in Africa, although they range into Spain and India as well. They are very odd and interesting little lizards and their habits, and their color changes have been carefully watched and studied. The head is high and narrow, the body compressed sideways, unlike most lizards, and the feet are very peculiar, two toes in each foot being opposed to the other three. The tongue is very peculiarly constructed, and the club-shaped sticky tip can be shot out suddenly to a distance of seven or eight inches, annexing the insect which the chameleon is stalking. They are extremely slow and cautious in their movements. The changes in color are only partly protective, chiefly related to the excitement or quiescence of the animal, or to heat and cold, as was long ago stated by Linnaeus. Some of the Madagascar chameleons reach a length of two feet, but they are mostly only a few inches long. No reptiles are so familiar, and yet so much maligned, as snakes. Most people regard a snake with horror, or at least with strong aversion. It is nasty, slimy, venomous. It kills chickens, it fascinates and devours little songbirds, and its bite is deadly poison to man. It is a thing to be killed on sight, but from a good distance and with stones or sticks, lest it attack you. Almost every small boy in the great majority of grown folk will kill any snake they see, feeling that it is the natural and proper thing to do. As a matter of fact, snakes are not at all slimy. Their skin is perfectly dry and scaly. They are quite as clean to handle as any dog or cat. 
There are a few poisonous snakes, but one may readily learn to recognize and avoid them. Most snakes, except in Australia, are perfectly harmless and are a great help to the farmer, as they devour quantities of mice and insects. Snakes do not fascinate birds. The fluttering, apparently helpless bird is simply trying its best to entice the snake away from its nest. No snake, poisonous or non-poisonous, will pursue a human being. Their chief anxiety, if they see one, is to get away as quickly as they can to a place of safety. When cornered or suddenly disturbed without a chance to escape, they will hiss and strike with the forepart of the body. A snake's striking distance is from a third to a half its length. But all this demonstration is entirely harmless unless the snake is a poisonous one and strikes some part of the body where its fangs can get through the clothing to the skin. For all the popular fear of snakes, actual recorded cases of death from the bite of a poisonous snake in the United States are extremely rare. In India and in other tropical countries, the case is different. The mortality from snake bite is large, partly because venomous serpents are more common, chiefly because the natives habitually travel barefoot through the jungle. The deaths from snake bite in India are officially estimated at 22,000 a year, about 1 in 15,000 of the population. It is probably less in other tropical regions. It is commonly said that poisonous snakes may be distinguished by their broad, flat heads from the non-poisonous kinds. This is only partly true. The poisonous snakes of the viper family, including the viper, puff adder, copperhead, water moccasin, fur de lance, and rattlesnake, do have wide, short heads. So do several kinds of non-poisonous snakes. But in the coral snakes and cobras, the deadliest of all venomous serpents, the head is of the same shape as the common harmless garter snake, or black snake. Snakes are the most highly specialized of the reptilia. Although undoubtedly descended from four-legged walking reptiles, no traces of limbs remain except for some vestiges in the boa and python. The body is much elongated and adapted to crawling. The peculiar loosely hung double-jointed jaws and the very elastic throat and neck admit of extraordinary stretching so as to swallow the prey whole, so that the snake literally gets outside of his victim by alternately setting forward the upper and lower jaws with their sharp little recurved teeth. The poisonous snakes have one pair of teeth in the front of the jaw, enlarged, and provided with a groove or canal through which the poison is injected into the wound. In the cobras and coral snakes, the poison fangs are fixed. In the vipers, they lie back against the roof of the mouth in repose and are erected only when the snake opens its mouth to strike. The great majority of the species live on dry land, hiding at night, and in cold countries, hibernating through the winter in crevices among rocks, in burrows made by rodents, or any other convenient shelter. Many snakes live partly or wholly in freshwater streams or ponds. A few are marine. Some species lay eggs, others bring forth their young alive.
The largest snakes are the boas and pythons of tropical countries, which are said to reach a length sometimes of 30 feet, and kill their prey by crushing it between their coils, whence the name constrictor. Nine-tenths of the living species of snakes belong to the harmless colubrine group, of which the pretty striped garter snakes are the most familiar kind. The black snakes, bull snakes, and hog-nosed snakes are well known in North America. Many others, under various names, take their place in other continents. Some of these colubrine snakes constrict their prey. Others swallow it without the formality of previously killing it. Related to the colubrine snakes are the cobras of the Old World and coral snakes of the New, all tropical or subtropical, and the most deadly of poisonous serpents. The majority of Australian snakes belong to this venomous group, so that in Australia, the popular fear and hatred of snakes is justified more than in other continents. The peculiar habit of cobras, when angered and ready to strike, of expanding the skin of the neck into a broad, brightly marked hood may be compared with the rattle of a rattlesnake, and is usually supposed to serve as a warning signal, serving notice upon approaching large animals that a poisonous snake is at hand, to be carefully avoided and not carelessly stepped upon or eaten. Some perfectly harmless snakes have the custom, when one comes close to them, of rattling the tip of the tail among the dry leaves in a way that makes a fair imitation of a singing rattlesnake. This quivering of the tail may be, probably is, simply from excitement. Nevertheless, it may serve to scare off large animals of inquisitive disposition and so be useful to the snake. The snakes of the viper family are all poisonous and inhabit both temperate and tropical regions. They include the vipers and puff adders of Europe, Asia, and Africa, the moccasin, copperhead, and rattlesnake of North America, and the palm vipers and fer de lance of tropical America and the West Indies. All are very poisonous, although not quite so deadly as the cobra group. The virulence of the poison differs with the size and the condition of the snake, as well as with the species, and with the size and stamina of the animal or person bitten. The bite of the fertilance has the reputation of being most generally fatal to man. End of section 11. Recording by Melanie Young.